the Fail On Podcast, episode 016. The first step is to get yourself to what I call free. I mean, this freedom number, right, with the, with the buzzword, but get yourself to the point where you're free. Because once you're, once you're at that freedom number, then you can breathe and then your mind can relax. And I think that's, that's the really beautiful tipping point. When you know that you're taken care of and your people that you love are taken care of, you can fail. And that's, I mean, freedom is providing yourself the opportunity to fail. Like you can fail forward. You can do all these things that business gurus tell you to do. Try and don't care if you fail and fail and it makes you stronger. And it's like, well, that's nice if you know that failing won't crush you. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes you are destined for more and that failing your way to an inspired life is the only way to get there. Today, we're learning from Jonathan Goodman. John's a best-selling author, entrepreneur, speaker, and one of the most influential and well-respected guys in the fitness industry. John loves fitness, hates bad socks, and considers himself to be a key lime pie connoisseur. I'd actually consider myself to be a strawberry cheesecake connoisseur, so... We've got to compare notes, but he's the creator of the Personal Trainer Development Center where he helps fitness trainers leverage their expertise to stop trading time for money. We'll be discussing how he creates businesses and books from a place of fascination and curiosity, his concept of what he calls the ignorance quotient, and how it's actually the key to taking action and not being paralyzed by fear, and the fastest, most logical way to replace your income if you are currently employed and trying to get to what John coins the freedom number. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. Hello and welcome to the Fail On podcast. I am sitting down today with Mr. John Goodman. He has been nice enough to host us in his office here in Toronto. So welcome to the show, John. Thanks for making the trip. And thanks for thanks for putting us up in your office right now. <laughs> of course. So just a little context. What part of Toronto is this, just so they have an idea? Yeah, absolutely. This is just west of Toronto. It's an area. It's kind of like the border of what's called Mimico, Etobicoke, right on the water. Toronto's got this incredible waterfront. It's like a U-shape. So we're, we're on the lake and we're looking across the water at the city. It's, it's the, the best place to be. No, it's dude. I always love Toronto. I've I've come probably three or four times this past year, and actually the weather's usually like I know it's April now. The weather's usually better than this. Yeah, I mean this is <laughs> that's this the guy is... that spends every winter outside of Toronto. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. So I was just telling you before we started recording that this is the first year that I've been back in six years. So I haven't spent a winter here in a long time. So I don't know what winter is like anymore. Like I haven't put on hockey skates <laughs> in six years. I I picked up a hockey puck yesterday. I was like, oh yeah, this is what this thing feels like. <laughs> That's, it's so funny because I was out with some friends last night for dinner and it's just so different because everybody's talking about like hockey because, you know, everybody grows up playing hockey. Where I'm from right. in Georgia, everybody grows up playing like baseball or soccer. It's just so different because hockey's not even a thing in yeah. Georgia. Although we did have the, the Atlanta Thrashers for a hot minute. Yeah, they, they that was unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, man, just to hop into it, why don't you go through some of your background and what got you into entrepreneurship in the first place? Sure. I guess if I look back, I was always kind of an entrepreneur. I've never actually worked for anybody else. But I studied kinesiology in university, like exercise science. 
I was personal trainer in university from years two to four at the university gym. And then when I graduated, like the goal was always to go into medicine, to be honest. I was like, I'll take a couple of years and be a personal trainer full time. And I obviously never went to medicine. I was a personal trainer, so I worked for myself. I mean, the best trainers are entrepreneurs. We've got to develop our own business. And I kind of hit a point at like 23 years old where I was making as much as I could make as a trainer in Toronto. I was referring my overload of clients to other people. I was managing a group of 10 trainers at that point. Where were you training people at? You didn't have your own gym, right? No, I was training out of a gym called Body and Soul Fitness okay. in Toronto. But yeah. it was your own business? They just, it wasn't you, my business. Gotcha. So you no. were working for them? I was a contractor okay. for them. Got it. Got it. And I just decided that I needed to figure out a way to make money when I'm not on my feet and wrote a book for trainers at 24 years old and started a website at 25 and now we're here somehow. I can relate, man. I grew up playing tennis and played tennis in university and then coached tennis afterwards. And it's just like you said, like you're on your feet all day. You have to be enthusiastic, super engaged. It's taxing work. Like people don't feel like, oh, a tennis coach or a personal trainer, you just stand there. But it's a lot of mental and physical work actually. Yeah. Yeah. So on that, along those lines, what made you kind of have the entrepreneurship itch to actually try to scale that into doing something else? That's a good question. I Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Like, I don't really know. I guess if I look back in it, like, I was just kind of making it up as I went. I was very fortunate. I graduated debt-free. I was able to have a lot of success early on and put a lot of money in the bank early on so I could fail and not really have a lot of risk. So I never really knew what an entrepreneur was. Like, this is before, like, being an entrepreneur was sexy, right? I never knew what it was. I'm from a family where every adult I ever knew was a doctor, lawyer, accountant, businessman, teacher, whatever. And so I don't know. I just, I felt like writing a book. So I wrote a book. Then I was like, well, crap, I need to figure out a way to promote this book. So I started a website and then, and then the website just started to grow. So I was like, well, this is fun. And that's kind of what I do now, to be honest. I just, I just chase things that are fun and interesting. And I mean, there's some strategy involved, obviously, but for the most part, it's, it's whatever is like highly engaging with me. I mean, I've, like, <laughs> there's, there's not that much more to it. I wish that there was like a master plan that I could like, oh, you see, I, I had all of these balls in my court and I, I organized them strategic. No, like I just kind of piled, like I've just produced stuff and piled stuff because it was fun. It's an important lesson, right? Because I think a lot of people get paralyzed by thinking they have to have that master plan when in reality, you just put one foot in front of the other and yeah. actually do something, right? Take the first step. I've got this concept that I play around with a lot that I call the ignorance quotient. And I don't know where it is exactly. I haven't been able to quantify it yet. But I feel like one of the plagues today in society is that we know too much, that we have access to too much information and it paralyzes us, always thinking that we need to know more before we do something. And I'm of the belief that like there was probably a point where you need to know enough about something. And then just so you don't really, really screw up, right? And then anything beyond that is actually a disservice. How do you find that level of where you know you have enough information, but not too much where you're stuck? I think you find that level. And again, I haven't been able to quantify this. I'd actually love to quantify oh, it so somehow. Cool. Yeah. I believe that that level is somewhere between knowing what action to take next, like being able to basically map out a trajectory, but also being able to really stave off any fear. And fear is simply an irrational response to the unknown. And so if you can make the unknown known or you can, you can identify the worst case scenario, then there's no fear. And so I, I think it's kind of a combination of those two, but I haven't quite figured that out yet. And I think, I know you said, you know, you graduated debt-free, all of that. 
So your worst case scenario was probably not that bad, no. right? Like you could probably live at home if worse came to worst. You could get a job. You, I mean, with personal training, because I've talked to a few different guys, it's a skill set where you can trade time for money and make mm -hmm. probably pretty good money, right? So it's may, maybe it's not scalable, but you can pay your bills. So I think it's a great it's a great way to get into business by having a skill like that where you can make hourly money on your own terms and have other time to figure stuff out. Yeah, was that a huge help for you? I think personal training is is a it's just a perfect job for somebody getting started. It forces you to be entrepreneurial. Number one, I mean, you have to drive your own business. I don't care where you're working. You're driving your own business. You're working for yourself. It forces you to be good with people. It forces you to build really strong relationships. People don't buy training. They buy trainers, right? It forces you to build great relationships with people. And it forces you at a certain point to really understand the value of time because any good trainer will get to that point where like, well, crap, I cannot physically work any more hours. You know, I can't be on my feet. What the heck do I do? And at that point, time management is, is basically all of it. So armed with those skills, I mean, you can do anything else i mean those are kind of the intangible why did skills, you right so i know you said you had maybe like 10 other trainers working for you at one point right i was managing them they weren't working for me like it wasn't my gym but but i was the senior trainer at that club yeah got it why do you think it's better or do you think it's better for people that are you know you only have so many hours in the day to train one-on-one -on -one or a group or whatever mm -hmm. do you think it's better to scale kind of online like the route you went or actually start a gym, hire trainers. What are the pros and cons there? And did you consider doing that? I never wanted to open up a gym. I just knew it wasn't right for me. I don't know why. It just never was anything that appealed to me. I took the job as a senior trainer, as, as the manager at like 23 years old. I was the youngest trainer by seven years when I took that job at the club. And it was largely an ego play. You know, it's, it's like Peter Principle, right? Everybody is promoted to a level <laughs> where they're not good at their job anymore. So... Why did I do that? I mean, and, and what's the best way to go? I, I think it's different for everybody. I think it's it's just super important to know yourself, especially more and more today. I mean, for me, yeah, the right decision. I like producing stuff. I never knew that about myself until I started producing stuff. Like content, et cetera? Creating. Yeah. But not even creating content. Creating product. Like, that's what that's what gets me excited in the morning. And so you know, writing books and not just writing books, but like writing beautiful books and interesting books and different books. Like, you know, I hired a cartoonist for one. I wrote a textbook and within the textbook, we did all these things that you would never see in a textbook before. We meshed it together with, with digital portal and all this different physical fulfillment, stuff you could never do, you know, even 10 years ago, because now you can self-publish this stuff and find your own distributors and printers and stuff like that. That's what I love. And so I think when I found that, when I started writing the first book, I was like, yeah, this is it. But I never knew that. How many years ago was it that you wrote that first book? And what was it? I was 24 years old, so that would have been seven years ago. And that book was called Ignite the Fire, The Secrets to Building a Successful Personal Training Career. So that book's in version 2.0 now, but like it's being translated to Chinese. It's already in Spanish. It's in mentorships in colleges around the world. Like some idiot 24-year-old decided to write a book <laughs> about, you know, educating his industry and the gumption in that. And and I did it because I was too ignorant not to do it. Yeah. That's you know, like often I knew, the best, right? Well, exactly. Like I knew so little about what you should do that I was just like, I'm going to write a book. And I did. And you had, because you had no limitations on, no limitations or expectations on what could and could not be done, right? Sure. So you just said, screw it. Pure ignorance, and it's bliss. <laughs> exactly. And, and like I just, I keep going back to that moment. I'm like, how? 
like, what did the old guard in the industry think of me? This, like, again, this... And you didn't have a platform at this time, right? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. I was working in a small boutique gym in a little corner of Toronto with no network. And I was like, I'm going to type some keys and, and, and find an editor and publish this book. And, like, I reached out to any... Like, like, this was the process. Like, I wrote this book basically every night. Every day during the day, I had a page on the back of my clipboard where I just wrote down everything I did. And then at night, I would just type that up in, like, a section. And I realized I needed to get an editor, so I reached out to everybody who I knew that had written a book in my industry that I felt was good. I asked them for an introduction to their editor. Everyone said yes. I took all the money that I had. I, <laughs> I hired an editor, and I navigated the publishing process, and I just, like, put out a book and sent copies to – like, I just, again, sent, like, cold emails to people, and I was like, hey, can I send you a copy of my book? So that was seven years ago. Did it sell right off the bat? It did because – I guess I didn't tell the story chronologically exactly right. The book came out like September, October. I started a website called the Personal Trainer Development Center in March. And that website, I started publishing other people very early. And so it's it's, it's still, you know, in existence today. And it's become the largest curated independent platform for trainers or for information. And it was all based around one principle, which is I only know so much, but there's a lot of other people who know a lot about a little. Why don't we just bring everybody in one place? And so I started just reaching out to people and basically created this platform where everybody could benefit. So I I did have a bit of a platform when the book came out, but more than anything else, I just started supporting other people. Like I just, every single Sunday, and I still do it to this day, I just published a list of the best articles I found on the net in the fitness industry. And now you have relationships with these people enough to send them a copy of your book. And if it's good, you know, the goal of any first book is to get it in the hands of a critical mass of people. And then kind of once that happened. So once you develop relationships with the other people, they were promoting the book to their list or what? Well, how, how did that look? Wasn't that organized. I mean, I sent him a copy of the book. And one thing that I, that I did is even at that point, a couple other people had sent me copies of their books and they had been published by publishers and I hated getting them. Because I hated the lack of tact and personality that they put in it. You get a book, and, and for anybody who's in this situation where you get sent a lot of books, you get a book from somebody that's sent from a publisher. You get this jerky form letter that is not personalized to you at all. It's like, hello, comma, right? <laughs> right. And it's like, here's your copy of the book. Please read it and share it on social media in these three ways. Here is a message to promote the book. And then it's just a copy of the book like that. It's like, for anybody busy, it's like, look, I like you, but I don't have time to read your 300-page book, necessarily. And you put zero effort and care into wanting to get me to. Sure. So one of the things that I did is I, I took the book, and I've done this with all of my books, is I wrote a personal letter to everybody who was getting a package. In the book itself, I found a page or a section that that person would be specifically interested in. I might highlight or even annotate the book in that section, like calling them out to a certain part of that section. I put a sticky note in the page of the book with their name with a line down. And in the letter, I just made note of that. And I just said, hey, so-and-so, Jeff, I think you'll love this one section of the book. Open it to page 174. And just made it super easy for them to at least crack open the spine. For anybody who understands software applications, like that's activation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you get them to take one action. Once they've cracked open the spine, you make it as easy as possible for them to take that action. Take out all the friction. Then if, again, if that's good then they might read the other book. Even if they don't, they're at least, you know, they've at least experienced it enough to say, hey, this thing is 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 pretty good. 
right? And they're willing to put their name to it a little bit. But I didn't beg anybody. Did somebody tell you like to do that? Or is that just something you thought of as you were going through the process? Like, this is a great no, way to get people that was to... just that was just if I wanted people to crack open. I didn't know the term activation at that sure. point. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't like strategic necessarily. Like no. you had this, like, like earlier, you didn't have this grand plan. It was just like the right thing to do. No. Got it. Nothing is strategic with me. I mean, things might seem that way for anybody who follows my stuff. They might seem it. For me, it's just, I've always, and I think as a trainer, it was this way too. I've always been very, very good at kind of putting myself in the other person's shoes and saying, what is it that, how are they going to experience this thing? What are they going to be doing at that time? And how can I, basically, how can I get them to want to do what I want them to do? With fitness, it was that way. How, As a personal trainer, how can you get somebody to want to do an exercise that you want them to do? With social media, so I've written a book on social media, it's the same thing. How can you get somebody to want to share a message that you want them to share? You don't ask them to do it. You know what their priorities are. And I think it's just always kind of been that way. And then just like being a good person i mean <laughs> right how like somebody sends you a book like do you want a form letter that's kind of jokey and just tells you to share it even though you don't really know the person no you you like want a note reminiscing about a story of that one time when you spent a night with that person like going for a meat fest or whatever yep no I totally agree and i think it's along the same lines i think it's a similar there's a similar I guess, idea when people are reaching out to get help from other people, whether it's mentorship or people you just want to connect with. Yeah. You know, especially guys with big social media influence, people reach out to them all the time. And it's a conversation I've had with a few people. Like, what's the best way to get your attention? Or like, if you want to reach out to somebody that you highly respect mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship or, or fitness or whatever, what's a strategy that you would take in terms of trying to get noticed by that person and get a response? People that are super busy, right. obviously. Well, one way, I mean, the way that you did it, it was smart is go through somebody that you know the person has a good relationship with. So our buddy Dan Dembski, who shirt I'm wearing at this point. Oh, he, oh yeah, down, he was trying to Marina, give me one. The best shirts on the planet, dude. Dude, I love his business so much. I, we, so we talked. Good. We talked yesterday, actually. And I, it's like, all I talked about the entire interview is how much I love your business. It's, it's so smart. I mean, I've I've been traveling. So so our buddy Dan owns this company, Unbound Marina. It it's Marina wool clothing, and he does it a lot more affordable. And for anybody who travels a lot, they know that Marina wool is the best material. And it was super expensive up until now. And Dan somehow figured out a way to make it a lot a little bit less expensive, and like nice fitting clothing and stuff like that. So anyway, have you basically done like, all I wear? Because all I wear is black Phoenix. Right, like I'm. How I'm, simple is that? It's perfect. I'm, I'm a uniform guy. I try to reduce as many decisions as I possibly can over the course of my day and my life, and one of them is clothing. <laughs> and so, what are some other outlets that you do, like in terms of just optimizing your making your life more efficient? Sure. I mean, it's it's getting an office like the one that I did here, just to separate home and not home. I just I just don't deal with stuff that doesn't matter. I wish I could make it. I have such an absurd filter on what matters and what doesn't matter. That seems like the that... opposite of a lot of entrepreneurs. Like a lot of entrepreneurs have like super ADD, shiny object syndrome. They're all over the place. So how do you? So I'll give you. I'll give you a, an idea. I I know how I want to. So I've traveled the last what five years, like six months out of the year, more or less. And I've gone to a lot of places throughout the world and in North America too. Like we hiked in sixteen national parks in Canada and the United States, and. The reason why my platform is entirely built on text and on articles is simply because if I used any audio or video and, and built a platform based off of that, 
then it would seriously limit my ability to live life the way that I want to live it. Because I wouldn't be able to go to remote places the way that I do and know that I would be able to work with audio and video. And so I guess those kinds of decisions, like what do I really want? What's really important? And then that focus again has been, has been great because like, if you try to do all of these things, you're going to do none of them well. We do text and we do written stuff better than anybody else for our audience. I don't touch. Go to my YouTube channel. I think I got four videos, <laughs> right? And they're, they're basically like videos of podcasts that I did with other people where they gave me the video. And I've never done anything audio other than appeared on podcasts here and there when it, when it works. All by design. Not just because you don't want to, just purely because you want to live life on your terms. Because what's important... What's important to me is to be able to produce great work. And, and again, I know that producing product, getting really beautiful things out into the world is what really matters. Another digital thing isn't really going to change anything for anybody else, but also isn't going to like hedge myself and create this long-lasting impact that I want to create. You get a book on somebody's shelf that's beautiful that they go back and read four times. Like that is super powerful. That's not easy to do. And you need to be able to think very clearly in order to produce that kind of stuff. And being able to think clearly is harder and harder these no, days. It's a great point because how do you feel like your writing has gone? Like if you're doing a podcast or doing YouTube videos, instructional stuff all the time, you wouldn't be as good of a writer as you are, right? No. Like how, how have you honed that craft of writing? Obviously, you just kind of winged it at first. I'm sure you had... I'm still winging it. But I'm sure you had some talent. I mean, how have you really tried to master writing? Obviously, there's not an end, but you get better and better. Sure. I, I think it's just finding your voice more than anything else. I mean, I don't... I begrudgingly called myself an author like two years ago when I had written three good books and five books total up until that point. I think it's just, I mean, yeah, I read, I read a bunch of books on writing and practiced and practiced and practiced. But I think a lot of the kind of winging writing is where you become better, where there's no stress. If you're like, I'm going to write a book and this is my chapter for the book. Like there's a lot of stress in that versus I'm just going to, like I probably publish 2% of what I write. Most of the stuff that I write is very much selfishly written for me. How much do you write? I mean, every day I try to write something. Like you can see, I've got a couple notebooks on my desk there. Like it's, it's sometimes a little, it's sometimes a lot. It's, it's whatever I feel like. And if I, my best trick is you just start and a lot of good writers will say this. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Hemingway or something would never end a writing session at the end of a chapter. Leave a cliffhanger, right? He would always leave a cliffhanger. Yeah. And I've taken that to heart where I'll end at the end of a chapter. But if I'm ever sitting down, and I don't know what I'm going to write. I'll write the words, I don't know what I want to write, so I'm just going to write and see what happens. <laughs> sure. And then you just fly. Yeah, and then just keep going, right? I mean, it's as long as you don't have a blank page. Something also that I'm very passionate about is pen and paper. Yeah. So do you do everything pen and paper then? Put it on the I computer? I always start pen and paper. Interesting. I always start pen and paper. So it flows better or Usually what? it never makes it to the computer, to be honest. If it's really good, then sometimes I'll take a picture and send it to my assistant who will type it up. If it's something that I think might be like a book, then I'll usually retype it on the computer simply because that's like part of the process of how I improve it. But it's just about anything. I mean, it really doesn't matter. I used to sit in the park and I would write backstories about people who would walk by. That's cool. Yeah. Like 
and people I've been out with friends and stuff like that and they've just asked me to do it like somebody walked by and they're just like what's the story and you just make up this like this ridiculous long winding like <laughs> like old Jewish grandfather never ending story about that person right? that lets you hone a really amazing skill just the art of storytelling right it's Which, just fun yeah like it's fun like why there's so much of you know you need to do this because it's strategic because it's business it's like no like you need to have fun. And I think what we're seeing in the business world too is the businesses that are being really disruptive, that are growing super fast, are businesses where they legitimately have fun. I read a story the other day of, of the creator of Cirque du Soleil, and he was in his office, and their company, of course, had grown a ton. And he hired a new employee because he thought that his office was getting boring, and it was a clown. And the only job of this new employee was just to clown in the office all sure. day. <laughs> like that's, but I mean, I feel like more people do that or more people need stuff like that. Just like joke around, be idiots, like loosen up because that's, that's when the magic happens. I can imagine some people are sitting there thinking to themselves, okay, like you had this personal training business right out of school. You didn't have any debt. You had less stress mm. and you're obviously a very easygoing guy. So... People might be thinking, yeah, it's easy for you to say that, right? To have fun and like the business will come to you and it'll grow and it'll be magical and you can write and it'll be magical you know, and everybody like rainbows, yeah, butterflies. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people sitting there in, you know, dire financial situations where it's hard for them to have fun because they're so worried and stressed about the financial situation. Right. So what would you say to them in terms of if it's somebody that maybe has a job but they're unhappy, super unhappy, not living the life they want, but they have they have potential and something they want to do, what would you recommend? So this is, I help a ton of personal trainers with this in my business. And the first step to fixing any problem is defining a problem. And I think that a lot of people in this, in that situation, and I'm, look, I'm fortunate that I've never been in it, but I've, I've helped a ton of people out of it. And they haven't defined the problem. This concept was pat down by a mentor of mine. The other benefit of being a personal trainer is you get to work with people way smarter than you that would never give you their time of day. And you get to spend like hours one-on-one -on -one with them. So this guy is still a good friend. He was the chief of psychiatry at one of the major hospitals in Toronto. Brilliant guy, entrepreneurial guy, everything, right? And he passed down this very simple concept to me that I've now renamed the freedom number. And the freedom number is the amount of money that you need each month to pay your rent, to pay off any dependents. I mean, this could be debt. And basically, like the minimum that you need to survive each month. So there's your definition of the problem. How many people listening to this right now actually know what that number is? Have actually defined that. How yeah. much money do you actually need a month to pay your rent, to pay off any debt that you might have, and to take care of anybody that you need to take care of, right, if there are any dependents? What's that number? Figure out that number. That's step number one. Step number two is to figure out what you're doing each day to make or what you, what you need let's to say, do each just, month just to so make that amount. Just so it's clear, let's say $5,000 $5, a month. So now it's next step. Okay. So the next step is to figure out how to make that $5,000. So if you're an employee, it's a little bit more difficult. I obviously work with personal trainers who charge an hourly rate and get paid an hourly rate. So the equation becomes much easier. But... Right. Let's say you have a job that's paying you a bit under 5000 Okay. So let's say you're getting 4000 a month post-tax. And you need to bridge that gap and start off by making an extra 1K a month. Sure. That's your goal. What would you recommend in terms of getting started for somebody that doesn't have an idea really? Somebody who doesn't have an idea, you look at what skills you have. The first step is to do whatever you can do that's highest yield. You know, everybody talks about passive income and accessory income streams and stuff like that. To me, all that stuff comes later. 
the first step is to get yourself to what I call free. I mean, this freedom number, right, with the, with the buzzword, but get yourself to the point where you're free. Because once you're, once you're at that freedom number, then you can breathe and then your mind can relax. And I think that's, that's the really beautiful tipping point. When you know that you're taken care of and your people that you love are taken care of, you can fail. And that's, I mean, freedom is providing yourself the opportunity to fail. Like you can fail forward. You can do all these things that business gurus tell you to do. Try and don't care if you fail and fail and it makes you stronger. And it's like, well, that's nice if you know that failing won't crush you, right? That's the Nassim Tlaib thing. That's, that's you got to mitigate loss, maximize potential gain. So what can you do? Usually it's service-based. What can you do to start, even if it's not passive, even if it's not the most scalable, that is as high yield as possible to get you to that freedom number that you've established for yourself? And then do that, right? If it's, I mean, there's other people who teach us really well online, right? What, whatever, I just work with trainers, but like whatever your skill is, whether you have some, some skills in social media management, whether you can clean houses, whether you like whatever it is. What about somebody that says they don't have a skill? I know it's they're probably just have blinders on. They don't realize what they actually are capable of. Mm-hmm. But let's say no fitness background, no, no. Everybody has a skill. The easiest way to figure it out is to do exactly what I did years back when I was writing the book. Every single day you walk around and you have a pad of paper in your pocket. You know, you could use like James Altucher, like his waiter pad thing if you want something that fits in your pocket. I had a clipboard, so it was easier. And on, on a page of it, all that you do is you write down everything you do. If you pick up a piece of garbage, you write it down. If you say hello to somebody, you write it down. Because all of those things are skills. What set my book initially apart in the fitness industry was the relationship aspect, was the belief that I didn't even know that I knew at that point where you know, the importance of a quality of a program pales in comparison to the importance of your ability to get somebody to want to do that program. And I never knew about all that stuff, but how do you interact with people? How do you say hello to people? I mean, look at all these things that are marketed online. How do you negotiate your phone bill? Like people have written eBooks on that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. (laughs) Right? I mean, all of those little things do, like, can you coach somebody in something that you do? And I don't know what the answer for that is for an individual person. I think the only way to do it is to really, again, define the problem. Like we have way too many solutions and we have way too few good questions. And that's such a huge issue. We need to ask better questions and we can't ask questions until we know what the problems are. So that's step number one. So I know you mentioned failure and it's tough to, it's tough to take a risk and not be afraid of failure if you feel like it's going to crush you, right? Mm-hmm. So one, what's failure mean to you? And then two, how do you get past that? You know, how do you get past that big fear of, of just... Failure to me is acting emotionally. The only times when I've really regretted anything that I've done is when I've acted without tact is when I've acted emotionally. And I now have a series of what I call objective filters that guides what I do, which are a series of predetermined logical questions that I ask myself when encountered with any situation. And that allows me to take a step back and say, okay, run through my questions, right? As opposed to like, even before like I comment to something on Facebook, right? I always go through those questions. Yeah. What are they? I'd have to list them. Okay. <laughs> for you. Cause there's, there's, sure. there's we'll put them in the show notes. We can put yeah, them in the show notes. This is a, a book concept that's kind of in, in working its way somehow through, through, my, <laughs> through myself. But failure to me, for the most part, is 
is not understanding the ramifications of something. You know, and I know you, you always talk about fear, like one of my favorite quotes is by Seneca, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. If you wish to put off all fear, imagine that the worst that can happen most definitely will happen. Fear is irrational. Fear is nothing but a response to not knowing what might happen. So if you can, again, define what will happen, what is the absolute worst case scenario of what's going to happen if you take action in this thing? And usually what most people find is that once they've established what the worst case scenario of that thing is, they're like, well, that's not too bad. All right, let's do it. Yeah, exactly. But if you don't know that, then you're scared. Yeah. And so... It goes back to defining it, right? So I think a lot of people will just act without really breaking down the situation and actually defining what it is you want to do mm -hmm. and are scared of. For sure. Yeah. I deeply believe that. I mean, all of the things that I've done, like in the last six years, I've put out something like five books, a textbook, a certification, four conferences, a couple online products. I mean, I did a fitness comic that failed. I did a blog that failed, another blog that failed. Oh God, I had three or four partnerships that were supposed to do stuff that didn't happen. Like the amount of things that we've tried to do <laughs> in, in the last number of years, I just shut down a membership that had like 980 members at 40 bucks a month. Like it just wasn't working. What wasn't working about it? I didn't think that it offered a good enough service to the members. I didn't feel like it differentiated from other things in the marketplace. I felt like people signed up for it because they trusted me and they trusted our company and they liked our company. And they stayed there because they liked our company and they wanted to support our company versus we were offering them something that was truly special worth a hundred times what they were paying. And you didn't feel like that's something that you could curate? I think that that's something that we could curate, but I know it's, you know, what, what we're developing now with the company will serve them so much more and that that membership platform is nothing but a distraction from so what we're did building. You, did you take them from that platform to something new or did you just turn, uh, what, you said it was at 40 bucks at almost 1,000 people? It was 30 to 40 bucks depending on when they signed up. So you're looking at 30 to 40K in recurring monthly revenue. Yeah. And so did you move them to another revenue stream or you just shut it down? Cut. Got it. Cut downloaded all of the content from it, made sure they had everything that we've produced and just said it actually today is the first day that it's completely shut off. That's crazy. End of March, done. Yeah, yeah. So because it didn't fit into the model, right? It how's, that affect your, model. how's that affect your business? What are your other revenue streams? And did that make a big dent in your business or, okay. That was, I mean, look, that was part of it too. And when we looked at our numbers, we realized that was nothing in kind of our business's revenue streams. I mean, we're an online platform in a community. So there's a lot of revenue streams from various, I don't do a ton of affiliate partnerships, but I've got a couple key partnerships with other companies that we support, stuff that, that we just plain don't do that they do. Yeah. Unfortunate, my books are self-published. And for anybody who self-publishes knows that you can make a fair bit of money self-publishing books if you are able to sell. And the books sell quite well. Uh, on Amazon mainly? All on Amazon mainly and then bulk orders. Yeah. And, and the ones that are translated I don't even know how any of that works, but... What's your biggest revenue stream in terms? Is it a course, a book? It's a certification that I developed. So I developed the first ever certification for online personal trainers. And I, I wrote the textbook on it and I created the certification on it. So we released that twice a year. And that's for them to be a certified personal trainer, basically. So it's not... Certified online trainer. Certified. So it's an accessory certification. It's not a... It's not your baseline cert. So Is that to so train virtually? Like to train? Yeah. Got it. 
So it's, it's how to be responsible training clients online. You know, you see all these, we call them Insta trainers. You see all these Instagram trainers and stuff like that selling meal plans and stuff. There are incredible ways that you can develop a responsible business, working with clients online, get them to adhere, program, I mean, take care of clients remotely. And, and I won't get into obviously the ins and outs here, but there's incredible ways that you can do it if you really understand the business model. But a lot of people who are doing it now, because it's it's grown so quickly, that aspect of, of the fitness industry, they're just kind of like throwing out workouts. And what most people don't understand once they go online is just because you're working online doesn't mean that you're working smarter. You can very easily work more hours for less money online with a bad business structure and by overpromising. Like, hey, here's here's unlimited email support. Yeah, exactly. No. And you're doing don't, all of it. Don't do that, bro. <laughs> what's the like on that note? What's the biggest mistake that you see up and coming online trainers make? Like, what's 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 the one thing that you see as a commonality that they always screw up? Copying other people, just not being themselves. Just copying other people's businesses, thinking, oh, this this person who you know maybe I like, or or maybe I think from from my vantage point by comparing my bloopers to their highlight reels, maybe. You know, it looks like they're doing really good stuff, so they must know everything. And so copying their pricing structure, copying their the way that they do their sales copy, all that kind of stuff. And like, most people have no idea what the heck they're doing because that person copied it from somebody else who also didn't know what they were doing. You know, there's no, it's an industry that's fast evolving, but it's still new. There are no precedents to it. I think so. That's an interesting point because a lot of the times you hear people say, okay, Look at a model that works or a business that's successful, model after it, put your own twist on it. But you're saying you're saying some of these businesses were dripped from other people. So what if what if there's actually so what if somebody sees your model, they see, okay, this is working for John. He's mm-hmm. crushing it, he's making it work. You don't think it's good for somebody to kind of obviously not completely rip off your business, but just have the kind of same structure and ideas. Quite happy for anybody to copy my business. Yeah. I know how hard it is. If you can do it, all the power to you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I get what you're saying. I don't think it's a bad thing to do. I think just, again, what's most important is to really establish what is right for you. So to say, okay, they're doing this. Why are they doing that? Does that work for me? What do I want to get out of this? Even something as simple as going back to the online personal training thing, like how are they developing their packages? What services are they offering to clients? And how are they charging for those services? Have they said the service is going to take me this many minutes per month to deliver in this many minutes and this many minutes? We've got very in-depth calculator of how to create, how to calculate this, but I want to offer these things. I know that I need to make this much money. I know that I have this many hours per month, meaning that I need to charge this amount of money per hour. So based off of what I want to provide in each package, how many hours is it going to take me to deliver? Does it fit into what I determine to be my hourly rate? And if it skews either low or high, then you adapt that. That's what's important. It's it's kind of the ideal, you know, the beautiful thing about working online is you can build the perfect model for you in your life. It's like you, like you don't want to do audio, video, so you sure. just you just write. And there are people who thrive with audio. You know, there are people who thrive with video. There's people who thrive with Instagram. People who use social networks that I don't even know exist, <laughs> right? Like there are so many ways to do this these days that I think what's just important is you figure out what works for you, what really gets you jacked up and you put your effort into it. You recommend trying a bunch of different things at first or do you recommend focusing on one one thing? I think you, you try a bunch of things, but very, very 
quickly and kind of go throughout them and you just see what kind of seems to make sense to you. What, you know, the way that you voice your opinions on different platforms changes and that's kind of natural. And once you decide one, then you go all in to that one. Go deep on it. You go deep on that one. And then once you've gone deep and build up a level of success with that, then you can start spreading it around. Like we went all into Facebook for a number of years. We built up page of 200 and some thousand people. We built up a big following on Facebook, a couple groups of, of like 15 to 20,000 people. And then now we're spreading them across. This is like six years in. So now we're, we're doing the inst- – I mean and always we're doing it in, in email list, but – now we're doing the Instagram, right? Now we're doing that. If you try to do all of these things at the beginning, you're just going to dilute yourself. So you build up a big platform on one and then you hedge yourself. Sure. No, that makes sense. Were you focusing on an email list from the get-go, from yeah. the beginning? Was that Always. was that the most important? In terms of people focusing on one thing or the other, I mean, obviously email is kind of its own beast mm-hmm. and, and own asset. Was that the most important thing you built early on? It was. I'm not. I'm very much on the fence here. I still haven't figured out what my thoughts are right now. Email used to be 100% because your deliverability was good. Your open rates were good. Your click rates were good. Email has gotten too easy to use now. And so all of those things have gone down. And, you know, it's creating, you're forced to have more and more impressions on a user before they buy anything now. And you just can't create that many impressions with email anymore. So to be honest, I'm just I'm just in a period in a process now where I'm just hedging. I still think email is probably number one. I mean, most of our sales still come through email and, and I think most people will tell you that. But you know, we try to we try to have people on email, on Facebook, on Instagram. And even then, I get stuff on people's shelves. I don't know what's gonna happen with the internet. Email used to be safe. It's like, oh, you own the you know, you own the contact. It's like, well, you don't own the email service provider. Right, You don't own Gmail and Gmail could be like, oh, by the way, like Hotmail, for example, just decided one day they don't like us. That's it. We can't deliver to Hotmail addresses. And so if that was my only source of business, I would be screwed. Yeah. It's so just a lack I of just, control. Exactly. So I just – the only thing that I can control are relationships and the only thing that I can control is getting physical materials that are beautiful, well thought out, that people want to revisit and gift and get them on people's shelves. I gave away over a thousand books this week, or these two weeks. And I mean, I sold more than a thousand books, but the strategy of that is A, I just like sharing this stuff again because it's fun. But also, like, how do we hedge ourselves? How do we make sure that we're in the best possible position to win moving forward, no matter what happens? We have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, with the economy and with social media and with email, we have no clue. And the only thing that I can virtually guarantee is a physical material in somebody's house is probably going to be there for a long time, and they're going to see it when they walk by their shelf, even if they don't know, but that's an impression where they're thinking of you. And so you look at like, you know, advertisers, you know, base their, you an advertiser, right? You basically base your success on, on cost per impression. And so what's my cost of impression of sending a book to somebody? Well, if I'm going to get 100 impressions over the next three years because they keep walking back and forth by your bookshelf and it costs me 25 bucks to send them a book, you'd buy that Facebook ad. Of course, yeah. So that's kind of the way that I'm thinking now. Are you selling more? Just I was just jogged my thoughts. Are you selling more on, for Amazon, are you selling more on Kindle or more on physical books? Because you, you talk a lot about physical books and giving a tangible thing somebody can hold, feel, see, read. What do you sell most of? 
Physical books, number one. Really? Kindle and Audible are number two. That's surprising to me. Yeah. Is that is that is that the trend for most people? For I'll tell most you why authors I think on it Amazon? is. I, I have no idea what the trend sure, is. Sure. I mean, we, we spoke about this before. I have no clue what anybody else does. It's, <laughs> it's completely irrelevant to me oh, what other people though. do. I, I pay no attention to it. And I don't even know, like, there are people in my industry doing incredible work. Like, I have no clue what they do. I'm happy to meet them and <laughs> talk to them about it. But You don't I, spend your time on it. It doesn't matter. Like, all that matters to me is that I do the best work that I can possibly do day in and day out. And if I do that, then... It'll take care of itself. It'll take care of itself. And if it doesn't, then I've done my best, right? I think what I do is very different with writing books. Like... Fiction books are very different than nonfiction books. Nonfiction books, people generally like to A, show off that they bought the book. I get a lot of gym owners buying books and stuff like that and giving it to their staff. I get a lot of parents buying the books like over the holidays because my book ranks well for a lot of topics. Over the holidays, sales go way up of like parents buying their aspiring personal trainer books. I think because of that, physical is much greater than like a Kindle or Audible. And with us, Audible, like fitness professionals love audio because they do a lot of cardio and stuff like that. So so they like audiobooks a lot. And so I, I did two of them in audio. I had a voice actor do it because I was in the because I was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> See, there's, I didn't, there's the audio issue, right? Well, exactly. So so personal trainer pocketbook and Ignite the Fire, I put them out at the same time. The second version of Ignite the Fire, I put them out at the same time. And I I kid you not, this is the craziest story. I marketed the book from an off-the-grid eco-home in Uruguay, in a tiny like area in Uruguay. And the first time I held the book, I was a month and a half after it had gone up for sale. And I was in a hostel in Brazil. My brother bought a copy of the book for me from Vancouver. And we were just about to leave for a five-day trek in, the Brazilian, in a Brazilian park called Chapada de Machia. And... That was the first time I held my my book that I had created. That's crazy. Right? This it's was like a two-year selling. journey. It had sold thousands of copies before <laughs> I had actually seen it. The proofing of the book was me ordering copies to my parents in Arizona who would like speak with me on Skype and show me it and show me like the left-right juxtaposition and like the design and all that kind of stuff. You can do this stuff now. Why the heck would you not? Right? Like – it's nuts. I mean, even sending out the sample copies, like I was in Uruguay, I was in Montevideo. I had to go to Juan Pedro, who we rented a house named Jericho from, which was a different house we lived in. And I had to go to him and I had to ask him to translate and find me a print shop so I could buy paper and sticky notes and pens because nobody speaks English in Uruguay. And like the common stuff we could do, but like to find a print shop and communicate to them that you need stationery is not easy, right? So I got all that. I wrote 120 letters. We packed all the letters. I put it together in a brick. And I mailed that brick through the Correo, which is like the post office. And I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation, but like post (laughs) office in, in Uruguay. And I mailed that brick to my assistant in Savannah, Georgia, who then had all of the books and put together the packages like I was telling you about with the sticky notes and stuff. So I wrote all the sticky notes. So it was my handwriting. I signed all the I typed the letters, but I signed all the letters myself because that was really important to me. And then I mailed them as a brick to her. They took a month to get to her. <laughs> our books came out our books our sample books went out late because I guess this should have been no surprise, but like the Uruguayan postal service is maybe not up to snuff with like <laughs> Right. Yeah, of course. North America. And I had no idea what was happening. And then she sent them out and by that point we were in like this off the grid eco home where their water is filtered by their garden. And when it was cloudy for a day, nobody could use electricity. Like Off the grid. 
why would you not do those things? Yeah, it's if amazing. you can, I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, it's 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 crazy how you can do this stuff from anywhere. Yeah. It's amazing. And adventure, if you if you okay focusing on that and not thinking that you need to be everywhere and anywhere. I mean, even like the podcast tour for the book, I had to do all my calls basically from four to seven AM because the internet was so crap. This was this house named Jericho in an area called Punta Rubia up the coast in, in the Uruguay. This was a different house where I did most of the like podcasts and whatever. I recorded them all in advance. The internet by the time 8 a.m. hit was so bad that I couldn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. And so I like would wake up and pop half a caffeine pill and do Just these podcast appearances and yeah. blast in them all. <laughs> like, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, that's but, awesome. Like, the marketing wasn't as good as it maybe would have been otherwise. But – Man, was it an adventure. But you're living off the grid. It's awesome. Right. So I know you've mentioned, you know, a mentor. You've mentioned your parents. You're married. If you had to, if you had to pinpoint one person, who would you say has had the most profound impact on your life? I mean, now it's my wife by far. She's she's the best supporter. I learn things by talking through them in circles over and over and over again. She's your sounding board. There is nobody else who has patience to listen to it. (laughs) I mean, we'll go for like a two hour walk and I'll say the same thing over and over again, 30 times. And she won't walk away from me. Is it give and take or is she just there to kind of just listen? I mean, it's, she asks great questions. It's give and take. She compliments me in a lot of ways, which I think any good relationship will have. I'm I'm very much somebody who acts, who like shoots first and asks questions later, who just, who just thinks up all these crazy things and just decides to do them without thinking. She's a strategist. She's an organizer. She's really good at kind of putting pieces together and we just complement each other really, really well there. So she's like, oh yeah. And then this works together this way. I'm like, yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. That's, that's great. So by far her, I mean, there's, you know, growing up, my father and I were, were very close. And my father still is is very, very close. I mean, we go like he'll ride his bike and, and we'll go in the summer when he's back. We'll go for coffee a couple mornings a week and just kind of sit by the water and chat. And he's helped me with a lot of the stuff that I hate, which is like financial stuff. <laughs> sure. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. So I pretty much don't have a mind for that. I'm like, I don't know. I just like money comes in and I do stuff with it. He's like, well, you're like spending like few hundred thousand dollars a month like you need to like figure this stuff out i don't know i just like whatever money goes out Uh, money goes out money comes in yeah like it's not how the world works you know uh, 48 laws of power uh, money flows i keep (laughs) it flowing yeah no uh, so he helps me with a lot of stuff like that but but no my wife allison i mean she's just super super special and 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 my biggest supporter and my biggest fan and and my best friend and all those good things so obviously shut down the shut down the membership site you have, I'm sure you have more book ideas in the pipeline. What What are you most excited about right now in terms of the future and the horizon? You say book ideas. <laughs> I'm not writing a book for a while. My, my issue that's is now, every, That's what every author says, and they write a book shit, like the dude. next month. My problem is right now, I know what it takes to write a book and to publish a book and to market a book, that I'm so petrified to do it again. It's one of those things where it needs to get, it needs to get so painful, mm. right? That the idea has to come out. Yeah, so I've got I've got files on my computer. I've got I think seven folders on my computer for seven different books, and just whenever I think of anything for them, come across a study or whatever resource, I just throw it in there. There's one of them that that's rearing its ugly head more and more. <laughs> See, I told you it's it's already coming oh, out. Oh man, I you know, but but like I said, it needs to get it needs to get painful to do it, and I think a lot of a lot of writers will say that. No, we're working on we're working on a startup. It's kind of 
I guess, an offshoot of the PTDC of my website. And that's what the entire team is focused on. We're self-funding it start to finish. That's what we've been working towards, the ability to self-fund it. And it's it's super exciting. It's something that I think can really impact the fitness industry in, in a really good way. I think that the fitness industry is a beautiful place. I think it also has a lot of problems. And I think a lot of the problems are solved by, again, how do you how do you solve or how do you fix something? You need to really firmly identify the problem. And I think we've done that. You know, we've we've figured out that basically all of the stupid stuff that happens in the fitness industry, you know, people selling crummy supplements and jerky teas and multi-level marketing and crappy gyms that don't take care of people. Basically, all of those things happen because trainers, fitness professionals need to figure out a way to make a bit more money in a bit less time with a bit better schedule. That's the problem. And so online training is a great solution for that for some trainers, but online training really only appeals to trainers who are a little bit introverted, who can sit in front of a computer. So it's not for everybody. And so what we're building out is, is effectively a marketplace where we're turning each trainer into both a producer and a consumer. And so trainers who have done stuff really good for themselves can make money by working to educate other trainers and coaches. And, and we're just decentralizing how that's done. So that's that's what gets me really excited today. And, and it's a it's a ridiculous, ambitious, that's great, audacious <laughs> project and all those fun things. But When's it expected to be launched? If we hit our goals, I mean, you can see the whiteboard here is, is some of the planning stuff beside us, which, of course, nobody else can see. So that's annoying when people say that on the podcast. <laughs> There's a whiteboard beside us, everybody. It has a bunch of really amazing, brilliant things on it that you won't ever be able to <laughs> see. master strategy plan. Exactly. And it's, it's everything you would ever need to know to make millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad he's not filming this. Oh, it's a shame. We're hoping to have the beta site live in October. And then early in the new year, probably February, March is when we'll go live. Because once the beta site goes live, we've got to do a whole bunch of content acquisition and stuff. And, you know, throw throw chaos monkeys through it, try to break it. And hopefully kind of February, March, because it's user generated, it has the ability to scale very, very quickly. There's a whole bunch of problems of scale and, you know, you can't grow too fast. Or you, If you do grow too fast with stuff like that, it can be a much bigger problem than not growing. So we're just making sure all that stuff's in in order first awesome can't wait to can't wait to see the progress and check in with you when it when it's getting closer to launch yeah we'll, we'll see we'll see we got a ways off but yeah yeah it's going well, good so far i'm gonna respect your time man but thanks so much for hosting me today and really enjoyed the conversation cool thanks Rob. all right see ya all right so you can find john at jonathangoodman.ca he's at john underscore ptdc on twitter that's at john underscore ptdc And of course, all the links and resources John and I discussed, including more information on his books and businesses, can be found at the page created especially for this episode. You'll be able to find that at failon.com slash 016. And keep an eye out for our next episode to follow this one. We'll be sitting down with Chris and Eric Martinez, twin brothers behind the business, dynamic duo training. These guys have built an incredible brand and business in the fitness industry, but have very valuable advice regardless of what industry you're in or what industry you want to get started in. So you don't want to miss it. And as I continue to build out this project with the simple goal of getting people to once and for all decide that they're going to fail their way to creating an inspired life, if you could just simply do one thing to support the cause, I'd be ever so grateful. When you click the subscribe button and leave a rating and quick review, This simply allows the podcast to be visible to more people. To rate and review the podcast, really easy. Just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. 
For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.